Tonight on Farage, as Kabul falls to the Taliban, we ask, has Biden blundered? Another health crisis no one's talking about. Very few of our young children have been to a dentist in the last year. What's that going to mean in the long term? And on Talking Pines, I'll be joined by the longest serving political leader in the United Kingdom. America is back. That's what Joe Biden said the day after the elections last November, that after years of America first, of Donald Trump not wanting to get the USA involved in foreign military adventures, and indeed Donald Trump saying we should leave places where American troops are still stationed, Biden came on this wave of America is back. We're going to fully engage with the international community. And boy, when he turned up at the G7, it was all smiles. Everybody thought he was wonderful. Business as usual. Well, as it turns out, voters both in the United Kingdom and in the USA have tired of endless foreign wars. And there's been quite big political pressure to bring the troops home. That was certainly the case in this country as well, despite the fact it has been many years since a British soldier was actually killed in Afghanistan. We did have a small presence, both the Americans and us, but Biden decided unilaterally to withdraw American troops, and that then gave us no choice. Biden did this without any reference to his allies whatsoever. And the point about strategic withdrawals is they need thinking through as much as advances. He didn't consult with anybody. He relied on advice from so-called experts, which said that actually the Taliban army would resist, the, the, the Afghanistan army would resist the Taliban. Uh, and even a few days ago, it was suggested by US intelligence that Kabul could hold for several months. In the end, the whole thing went in the space of hours. Was Biden given bad intelligence advice? Did he just choose to believe what he believed? But worst of all, there does not appear to have been any contingency plan in place whatsoever, if things were to go wrong, for how to evacuate up to 10,000 American citizens and certainly over 4,000 British citizens. And so now we have this extraordinary standoff at Kabul airport with British and American troops manning the border, Taliban forces not very far away, Negotiations going on between the two, the evacuation of hundreds of people taking place already, but a very difficult, dangerous and tense situation. Secretary of State Anthony Blinken has said, this is not Saigon. No, Mr Blinken, it's not Saigon. This could be much worse than Saigon. Worse because if things too deteriorate, we could be in real trouble. I thought it was very interesting that our Defence Secretary, Ben Wallace, this morning, tearfully said... We will not be able to get everybody home. I don't know whether the evacuation will continue. I don't know whether we're going to finish up in perhaps even a Tehran 1980-type situation with some of our people being taken hostage, and I pray that doesn't happen. But it, it seems to me that Biden has bungled. And I want to know from you, do you agree with me that Biden has bungled, that we've left thousands of people in a very precarious position. We've perhaps wasted 20 years of effort and much treasure and much blood. So tell me what you think. GBviews at gbnews.uk. Has Biden blundered? I think he has. 
And I think the political consequences for a man whose poll ratings 200 days into being president were falling already, I think the implications of it are really quite significant. Well, what of British politics? Uh, Dominic Raab, I was on the show yesterday morning, the political correction, I kept saying, where is the foreign secretary? This unfolding disaster, where is he? Well, it turns out he'd actually gone on holiday. So let's go to GB News' political editor, Darren McCaffrey, down in Westminster. Darren, good evening. Good evening, Nigel. How are you? I understand that uh, the Foreign Secretary has returned from his summer holiday. Um, what's he had to say? And what indeed is our Prime Minister saying? Well, first of all, let's uh, address the issue of Dominic Raab. As you say, uh, he'd been away on holiday. It must be said, according to reports, against the advice of many of his officials who thought and feared uh, that this might be a very crucial weekend with the Taliban push in Afghanistan, then, of course, proven right. Dominic Raab scurried back to his desk at the FCO today. He did speak to reporters this afternoon, Nigel, in which he talked about, frankly, how the scale and the speed with which the Taliban have advanced in Afghanistan had taken everyone by surprise, clearly, not least of all, him, and that lessons needed to be learnt. But... Dominic Raab is back behind his desk. To be fair, though, Boris Johnson has clearly been across this most of the weekend from uh, Downing Streets. Tonight, it's been announced that an extra 200 British troops are going to be sent uh, to Kabul, to that airport, the last passageway out of Afghanistan, in addition to the 700 already there, so 900 British troops to help try and evacuate those 4,000 either British citizens or Afghanis uh, that have been helping British forces over the last couple of years manage to get out of the country. How long is that going to take? Well, listening to the Defence Secretary this morning, Ben Wallace, he was suggesting it could well take weeks, obviously depending on the security situation. British troops could be at that airport until the end of this uh, month. But you're right in pointing out, of course, he also suggested that they may not be able to get everyone out. Why is that? Well, simply, if you're not in Kabul or near it, your ability to get to the airport may well be impeded and the British have got no way uh, to go and rescue uh, those people. And additionally, as well, uh, this evening, Nigel, uh, the Prime Minister has spoken to the French President, Emmanuel Macron, uh, in which they've talked about how they need the international community to come together, to cooperate, have a unified approach on Afghanistan. In terms of, it says, recognising any future agreement and in working with a, a humanitarian and refugee crisis, working to prevent that, of course, from happening. I think what is also interesting... And you alluded to it there. Given the special relationship, given the fact that the US and the UK have worked side by side in Afghanistan for the last, well, the best part of 20 years, the very fact that Boris Johnson has not spoken to Joe Biden at all is worth a note. Of course, we are due to hear from, finally hear from Joe Biden, who's going to address the American public in the next couple of hours. Darren, thank you very much. And I think for anyone watching this, you realise that with Joe Biden as the US president, the special relationship at the moment is not very special. Now, why did we go into Afghanistan? 20 years ago, we went directly in the aftermath of 9-11 and we went because we saw the Tora Bora cave complex and other places as being a hotbed for the plotting of international terror. Well, I wonder given that we've left or we're in the process of leaving, is there a danger? Is there a real danger that Afghanistan returns to being such a place? Well, joining me 
to discuss that very issue is Major Chris Hunter, QGM, former British Army bomb disposal expert who served in Iraq and Afghanistan and for over 18 years, and a former special advisor to the counter-terrorism group COBRA. Um, thank you very much indeed, Chris, for joining us this evening. Um, I said a second ago, we went for a very specific purpose back in 2001. It seems we achieved that, but then decided to stay for a lot, lot longer. Uh, is there a danger that Afghanistan once again becomes a breeding ground for international terror? It's interesting you, uh, you, you use that, um, that particular question, actually, Nigel. Um, a lot of people have been saying, are the Taliban a threat to us? And the Taliban has never attacked a Western nation, uh, you know, on, on foreign soil, if you like. Um, are they a direct uh, threat to us? The answer is no. But exactly as you've, uh, you've discussed there, um, I think there, there are two, two aspects to this. First and foremost, um, while they're saying, you know, they're going to change the way they do business and uh, they're going to be open to, you know, um, giving women equal rights and all that sort of stuff, they have never, ever stuck to their words in the history of the time that we've had any dealings with them. Um, they are absolute liars. You know, there's no two ways about that. I think, secondly, um, the way the, uh, the US or the way Joe Biden uh, basically, you know, ordered his forces to sneak out in the middle of the night, um, as shameful as that is, what he's actually done strategically is send the message to the world that um, if, you, if you fight an insurgency and you're fighting against the world's greatest superpower, just basically keep going because eventually they'll give up and they'll, uh, they'll just sneak off in the middle of the night without a fight. And I think the other issue that we've got, sorry to go on there, Nigel, I can see you were just about to... No, that's fine. Now go on, one please. Point. I think the other point is, you know, they're forming these alliances now that they didn't form before with countries like Iran. Um, and Iran um, is well documented in its execution of state-sponsored terrorist attacks. And it also uses Lebanese Hezbollah, one of the most prolific terror groups around the world, as its proxy. So... I think we're going to see a lot more, um, not just sort of um, attacks overseas, but as you say, we're going to see this hotbed of terrorism where it's used for training, recruitment, um, and obviously, uh, you know, equipping terrorists as well. I mean, there was a political movement, really, in the United Kingdom and in America that said, look, 20 years was long enough. Just how much longer can we be here? Uh, but it is in the execution of that withdrawal uh, that I ask some questions. I mean, they must have game plan. Surely the Americans must have game plan what would happen if the Taliban advanced quickly, leaving thousands and thousands of foreign nationals, let alone... Afghan interpreters who'd worked with the Allies stranded. Had they game planned this or was this just done without a thought, in your opinion? Look, it's very, very hard to second guess, you know, what senior military commanders and politicians have done. But let me just say this. You know, you don't need to be a military historian or even an Afghan vet to know that if you decide to withdraw and you leave the Afghan forces to their, their own devices, You've got to at least provide air power. And if you're going to withdraw, the strategically sensible thing to have done would have been to wait until the autumn. Because in the autumn, that's when the fighting begins to sort of um, slow down. And in the winter, it ceases altogether. And that means they could have had a, a graduated, you know, um, well-planned withdrawal. And they would have been able to do that sort of handover of power. The Taliban wouldn't have been able to sort of do that rapid... Um, escalation, mobilisation, and then sweep through the country as they have done, um, which you know, to my mind, just says it's you know 
one of the most catastrophic military failures in certainly the last century. Mm. And whoever gave that, uh, you know, gave the go ahead to that plan, I'm afraid I'm, you know, it's a military imbecile. Well, you couldn't put it more clearly than that, Major Chris Hunter. And thank you very much for joining us here on GB News. And yes, all this talk about this sort of new Taliban, that somehow they're going to be nice to women and it's all going to be different. Well, uh, a former colleague of mine in the European Parliament, James Glancy, who served with Royal Marines um, out in Afghanistan, won the, won the Conspicuous Gallantry Cross, actually. Uh, and Glancy went back in February, spent several months touring Afghanistan to try and see you know, how things looked many years after he'd served there. And he was photographed with four Afghan interpreters who helped him on that trip earlier this year. Uh, they all lived in Kandahar, and all four were murdered outside their houses last Thursday evening, shortly after the Taliban took control of that city. So I think if you want any evidence uh, that there's no question that Afghanistan is going back to the dark, bad old days, I think it's there. And I think it's very, very clear. Now, one of the groups that I've thought about a great deal, not just in these last few days, uh, but indeed over the last year or two, when we've been assessing, was it successful for us to get involved with the Americans and other NATO countries too in Afghanistan? Every time I've been critical of some of the policies that we've adopted and the endless series of wars, whether it was Afghanistan, Iraq, Libya. I've always been slightly cautious in being too critical because I've thought about the men and women that have served us in those conflicts, uh, the lives that have been lost, the many thousands that have been very seriously injured and whose lives were saved by the most amazing field medicine that we have today. But I think we have reached that moment now where we have to speak to people who served in that conflict, who saw things they'd perhaps rather not have seen, to ask them the simple question, do they feel now that it was actually all worth it. Well, I'm joined in the studio by Trevor Colt, British Army veteran and a recipient of the Military Cross who served for 20 years, including, Trevor, four tours of Afghanistan. So it's a country that you spent a considerable amount of time in uh, and you were involved in an, an astonishing number of enemy engagements. Yes, I was indeed, Nigel. Yes. I, I, mean, I mean, over 100 military engagements of some kind, firefights that you were engaged in and you know, without pushing it too far, you know, you clearly on some of those tours, we took very serious losses, didn't we? Yes, we did. Um, it was a tough time. It's always been a tough time for any soldiers to deploy to Afghanistan. It is kinetic from the, the minute you wake up to the minute you go to bed. Um, I've seen lots of friends die on the battlefield, picking up body parts. Um, you know, we have to remember that we had 457 British deaths. Yeah. Uh, we've got over 7,000 amputees in the UK, 26,000 casualties. And that, you know, that point you've just raised there about the amputees and, and, and many other people very seriously injured and, 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 and some physically and some mentally from Afghanistan, that figure never gets discussed, does it? No, it doesn't. And, and Nigel, the one thing that we don't discuss is the fact that our own MOD still haven't paid out compensation for over 10,000 of our veterans that are still injured at home waiting, who can't pay bills, who are still struggling with mental health, which is a complete catastrophe at the minute. But as a serving soldier, you know, and, and discipline, of course, is the absolute byword of military service, and, you know, yours is not to reason why, yours is to do what the government of the day says that you should do, and, and, and soldiers go about that job generally pretty uncomplainingly, and certainly despite some of the horrible losses we were taking 
You know, I never heard any whisperings or rumblings from inside our forces. There was, there was no talk of desertion. You got on and did the job. Yes. But now that we've left, after this very long period of time, 20 years, how do you feel now about what, not just what you went through, but, but, but the higher price that was paid by others? Nigel, I feel betrayed. I feel betrayed by Boris Johnson. I feel betrayed by the President of the United States. I think both leaders are complete idiots. They have left the people of Afghanistan, obviously, to fend for themselves, as we just discussed there with Major Chris Hunter. There's no air support. We're sending over 600 powers. Another two is going, 200 is going over. Yep. They've got no air support. Um, it's a complete mess. It's they a are, disaster. I mean, do you think they're vulnerable now, those, those, those troops? Without a shadow of a doubt. We couldn't beat them. Let's be honest. We couldn't beat the Taliban when we had the Green Berets, the SAS, the Parachute Regiment, 16 Brigade, the Royal Marine. We couldn't beat them with the best firepower we have, yet we've now sent over a battalion's worth of men yep. without any of those assets. I think they're vulnerable. I just hope they all get back in one piece. Yeah, well, I certainly hear here that and the civilians and the Afghan interpreters. And you probably just heard me tell that story about yeah. the people that helped James Glancy yes. when he was back over there earlier this year. So that's all pretty horrendous stuff. I mean, I suppose, Trevor, we could say that had our leaders 20 years ago been students of military history, they might have realised that nobody ever wins in Afghanistan. Um, I, I, you know, how did you feel at the time when you, know, when you, when you first would, were, were deployed there? Did you feel in the beginning that it was a worthwhile thing to be doing? Well, the mission at the start, which I was given by Lieutenant uh, Colonel Stuart Tuttle, DSO, was that we were going across to burn the poppy fields, which was how they make their money, how they yep. make weapons in a black market. However, whenever we were on our way out, the mission changed. We couldn't burn the poppy fields. And so from the start right until the end, there's never been a strategic withdrawal plan. There's never been a mission. We didn't know what we were doing. Half the time, we weren't allowed to use uh, card 49 Alpha to fire. We had to get permission to engage Taliban. We had to be shot at first in the middle of a war scenario. Our, our commanders at the top level didn't know what they were doing from day one, and the guys at the bottom suffered. Trevor, it must be a very difficult place that you and the veterans are in right now. And I want to say thank you for your service. And I'm sorry that it's finished up the way that it has. Well, that was Trevor Cole, and almost certainly expressing the views that are being held by many thousands of people who served in Afghanistan, asking themselves the question, what was it all for? Over the last few weeks, I've talked to you here on this show about the upcoming looming health emergency. One area I hadn't even thought about were teeth. Apparently, very few of our youngsters have been to the dentist over the course of the last year, which means we're going to have a lot of children with rotting teeth. We find out why and what can be done about it in just a moment. I've been asking you, has Biden bungled with this unconditional withdrawal from Afghanistan leading to the Taliban surging into Kabul and thousands of our people at the moment stranded? I ask for your views. Noah on email asks, it saddens me, says Noah, that the Afghan translators and those who have risked their lives to help our troops are stuck behind and risking death whereas the illegal criminals are still able to get migrants across the channel. Well, it's a perfectly fair point, Noah. Uh, I have a feeling, though, the knock-on effect of Afghanistan will be felt in the English Channel and probably felt within the space of the next few weeks or months, because I promise you that everybody that crosses the channel now uh, without ID, which is almost everyone, will say they're from Afghanistan. Some will be, 
I've no doubt. But it's going to give us even bigger problems in the English Channel. Corey asks, do you think NATO will send troops back to Afghanistan? Well, given the uh, power and the confidence of the Taliban at this moment in time, uh, I would have thought that would be militarily very difficult and potentially very expensive and politically pretty much impossible. All we can hope, as Trevor Colt said, is the 800 or so British soldiers that are there now, the several thousand American soldiers that are there now, all we can hope in the short term is that they are nationals and as many of those Afghan, genuine Afghan translators as possible, make it back. Peter on email says, this is all Joe Biden. The Americans were running the show over there and their quick running away from the country has caused the chaos. America is back, is what Joe Biden said. Doesn't appear to be the case, does it? Mary on email says, it is never fitting for nations to take long-term responsibility for the security of another country without implementation of self-governance. Easier said than done. Well, that was the argument for staying. The argument for staying in Afghanistan is we were there trying to help them get back on their feet. But a lot of public opinion said that 20 years was a long time. Uh, Kirky says, isn't the silence of Tony Blair deafening? Funny that, actually, because Tony Blair, particularly on the pandemic, has been very, very active recently. And I'll take just one more, although there are thousands coming in. Thank you for engaging. Matt on email says, Biden claims to be woke and a supporter of every malign group. How can he abandon women and children to the Taliban in such a disorganised fashion? This is also a betrayal of the brave soldiers who lost their lives trying to protect the population from the tyranny. Well, I'm afraid, I'm afraid it is difficult, given the way this withdrawal has been organised, to disagree with much of that. Now, the looming health crisis. I've been talking in the last few weeks about knee operations, about hip replacements, about the fact there are now, and it is now, five and a half million people on the NHS waiting list for some kind of procedure. What I hadn't realised is that this reaches into the area of teeth as well. And I'm very pleased to be joined tonight by Barry Cockcroft, CBE, former Chief Dental Officer for England from 2005 to 2015. Barry, good evening. So I was absolutely astonished when I saw the figure that just one in seven children under the age of five had seen a dentist in the last year, compared with the figure of one in three back in 2019. So, Barry, can you just tell us what's happened here? Well, I don't think these figures will come as any surprise to anybody connected with the dental world. I mean, practices were closed for several months, and then when they did open... Um, they were told to focus on emergency treatment and, uh, and, the, and the time between appointments was greatly extended. So I think this will come as no surprise to anybody in the dental world. I think what's really important is the NHS gets a grip and has a really robust recovery plan. They've talked about recovery plan for the wider NHS. Dentistry is very important to everybody and it's really important that we have a robust recovery plan in place to, act, to actually address this and make sure that, that, that there will be an effect in, in the long term. That's bound to, but we need to minimise the long-term effect as much as possible. So if we have children that are not being seen, children that are not being treated, that presumably means long-term dental problems that go on for years and years. Yeah, I think the important thing is that oral health depends on three things. It, it depends on 
a, the right diet, reducing the amount of, of, of sugar and also the frequency of sugar, which is really important for dental, for dental health and was a significant problem during lockdown. Brushing your teeth, obviously, properly twice a day, first thing in the morning and last thing at night. And thirdly, visiting the dentist on a regular basis. And the, the issue is that this disease is completely preventable if people did the right thing. Yeah. So it's not only about getting the treatment right, and that's really important because early disease, untreated, becomes difficult disease and becomes serious disease. It's much easier to treat the early disease, but actually it's much more important to prevent it in the first place. And to give them credit, the government have done some really good or said some really good things in the health bill around preventive dentistry. And that's really encouraging. But practices are really struggling now uh, with workforce, especially in rural areas where it's really difficult to recruit people. And the government needs to have a really robust recovery plan and actually put some money behind it to actually do it. So, Barry, we have a backlog of people of all ages, I guess, waiting to see a dentist, waiting to have work or waiting non-urgent work or waiting for consultations. Uh, my question to you is very simple. How big do you think that backlog is and can the NHS on its own catch up with it? Well, dentistry is not just the NHS. About 20% of dentistry provided in the private sector. And that reflects the change in oral health over my time. I mean, there is much more interest now, obviously, in cosmetic dentistry and things like that, which is beyond the scope of the NHS. So it's not just the NHS, it's about the private sector as well. And the prime problem at the moment um, is, is the workforce issue. Recruiting dentists to go and work in rural areas was tricky when I started at the Department of Health in 2002. And it's become very tricky again over the last few years. But it needs some support, but not just on dentistry. It needs the wider community to realise these very simple messages about brushing your teeth, reducing the frequency of sugar intake um, and, and visiting the dentist when you can. So there's no silver bullet to this, but everybody needs to focus. And it's very important. There is something like in normal time, there is something like a million people a week see a dentist. It's a very significant part of everybody's life. And do we have enough dentists in this country trained, qualified today, both throughout the private sector and the NHS. Do we have enough dentists to deal with the current problem or are we going to need more of them? Well, I think, first of all, it's not just dentists. It's the whole dental team because there's a range of professions who work, dental hygienists, dental therapists, can, can do some of the work. But on the whole now, dentistry is provided through contracts with the NHS, the NHS side of it, and people who work in these rural areas now are all saying it's getting very difficult to recruit people. So it's not just trade... I've been in, I was in practice 25 years and people used to come and work in the NHS from, from the Commonwealth and then it changed to becoming the European Union. What we need to do is ease the way so that people from countries where there's an oversupply and there are countries with an oversupply okay. can easily get into this country and, and support the workforce, whether it be NHS or private. And just to finish on a positive note, in general, our teeth are much better. I mean, I know that the, the British and their teeth have always been a bit of a laughing stock. For some other countries around the world, generally, our dental hygiene is better today than it used to be, isn't it? Yeah, it, it has. It's a bit of a myth that we have poor oral health. Generally, when I was CDO, we had some of the lowest rates of tooth decay in the world. What is the real problem is the difference between the more affluent side and the deprived communities. And that's a real problem. And that's why water fluoridation, which was suggested, which the government is going to support, in the health bill is such a positive thing to do to, to close the gap between those social social inequalities. 
Thank you very much indeed, Barry Crockcroft, for joining us. And that's something that we're going to keep abreast of, the looming health crisis, much of it as a result of the pandemic. Now, back to the theme of Afghanistan, this disaster that is unfolding. And I'm very pleased to be joined by Ambassador John Bolton, former United States ambassador to the UN, and, of course, National Security Advisor to President Donald Trump, 2018 to 19. John, welcome to GB News. Nigel, good to be with you. Thank you for having me. Thank you. Now, has Joe Biden bungled? I think the answer to that is quite clearly yes. I know that you're very unhappy with this turn of events. Tell me something to begin with. Would this have been different if Donald Trump was still in the White House? Would he have threatened airstrikes? Would he have threatened retaliation? Or wouldn't it have made any difference who was there um, in Washington, D.C. today? Uh, I don't think it would have made any difference. I think both Trump and Biden wanted to get out. Biden has wanted to get out of Afghanistan since 2009. Uh, and Trump wanted to uh, really during his entire uh, four years in office. Uh, so I think it's hypocritical for Biden to say, well, I was stuck with this deal that Trump made and I didn't think it was a very good deal. Biden uh, has been stuck with a lot of things from Trump that he had no trouble reversing. If he didn't want to do this, he could have easily changed it. And in fact, he did extend the date of withdrawal from May 31 until September the 11th, a very unfortunate choice. Uh, Biden's committing two things wrong here. It's the wrong policy, uh, and he's, he's carried it out in a miserable fashion. Yeah. Um, funny, though, isn't it? You know, as you say, Trump for a long time had not wanted to be in Afghanistan. Yet when he when he was president, he didn't actually do it, did he? Well, there was there was a lot of discussion about what exactly the United States should do. And uh, uh, I think that the the strategic interest of the United States is what needs to drive the question. And and that was to keep Taliban from returning to power and giving sanctuary to Al-Qaeda and ISIS and other terrorist groups we haven't even heard of yet. And I think that's what we need to focus on going forward. This situation is not reversible in the near term. Uh, we are going to have a Taliban-controlled Afghanistan. And the question is, are all of us going to be more threatened now because of this uh, sanctuary for terrorists? Well, answer the question. Do you believe, do you believe, as many believed 20 years ago, do you believe that Afghanistan once again becomes a hotbed for international terrorism? I think it's a near certainty. If you look where the terrorist threat is now in Western Iraq, in Syria, in uh, Libya, in Yemen to an extent, it's in areas of anarchy, of instability, of inadequate uh, control by responsible authorities. But that means the terrorists live in uncertainty there too. If they found a friendly regime like the Taliban in Afghanistan to set up sanctuaries and rear bases there, they will do it in a heartbeat, and we will be right back in the pre-9-11 environment. Yeah. That's what's so tragic here. Now, Secretary of State Anthony Blinken has said this is not Saigon, but I wonder whether it might actually potentially be worse, because we've got many thousands of British nationals there in Kabul, uh, many more thousands of American nationals in Kabul, uh, translators, Afghans that work for us uh, over the course of the last 20 years, and we're doing our best to evacuate people, uh, but we had our own Defence Secretary, Ben Wallace, this morning, almost tearfully saying we won't be able to get everybody out. Um, do you think we're able to talk to the Taliban, at least for the next couple of weeks, to get people out? Or do you fear a potential hostage crisis? Well, I think we have to worry about it. Look, I think Taliban 
have control within their grasp. They, they can see this, they can taste it, they've got almost everything. It would be uh, crazy for them militarily to do anything to interfere with the evacuation. And in fact, you could make the argument, they would say, get all these people out so we don't have to deal with them later. Uh, but just look at conditions at the, the Kabul Civil Airport right now as we speak. We don't have control of the perimeter. We've got Afghans all over the runway. Uh, I'm not sure how long Taliban can maintain control of their own forces. So uh, we don't have a lot of time. I think your Secretary of Defense is exactly right. And there's a real tragedy at work here. It shows just how poorly planned this evacuation was. Uh, but it tips on the on the verge here of really descending into chaos, which is going to be uh, brutal if it happens. And finally, John, you know, the way this withdrawal was handled, it does very much appear to have been a decision taken by Joe Biden and Biden alone. Uh, he didn't even consult with the British, as far as we understand. Uh, it does seem with Biden in the White House, the special relationship isn't very special at the moment, is it? Yeah, well, this president who is going to restore all of America's alliances has uh, has left them in worse shape after seven months in office than, than what he inherited. And I feel particularly badly for the British who were with us through the thick and thin of Afghanistan uh, and who were left in the dark about it. And I think are probably still in as much uh, in the dark today as they were days ago, because I don't think the policy is known here in Washington. I think they're making it up minute by minute. Of what I can see, the opinion polls in America, and obviously one takes these always with a pinch of salt, but even before uh, the events in Kabul and Afghanistan, uh, certainly the ratings for Biden, and in particular for his deputy Kamala Harris, um, have been falling. We're not even 200 days into um, this Democrat administration. Um, is there politically now some big opportunities for the Republicans with the midterms not all that far away? I think uh, absolutely, you know, it's uh, still hard to tell exactly what will happen here. But even for Americans who are war weary of these uh, of these long conflicts in places like Afghanistan, don't like to see our country and our friends and allies humiliated. Uh, they don't like to see the Americans being helicoptered out of their embassies. It does remind them of Saigon. And I think this goes directly to the question of Biden's competence and his credibility. And he's not looking good. John Bolton, thank you very much indeed for joining us here today on GB News. Well, John Bye. Bolton never ever minces his words. You always know what he thinks. He certainly thinks that Biden has bungled. I think Biden has bungled. I think most of you have come to the view that Biden has bungled. Well, joining me tonight for Talking Pints, well, I did say to you it was the longest serving party political leader in the United Kingdom. What I didn't tell you was that it is Alan Howling Lord Hope of the official monster Monster raving loony party. (laughs) Alan, welcome to Talking Pints. We've known each other for a long, long time, Nigel. Mm. A long time. We have, absolutely. And I... So I first came across your party... And I'm going way back, nearly Eastley. Eastley, the Eastley by-election. Yes. And I had put my name forward for UKIP, yes. this brand new party. Yes. And I was clearly challenging your space. Of course you were. I mean, I was challenging, but such was standing. Screaming Lord Such was there. He was yes, he, he was, he was, the, the, he was the candidate leader. at the time, yes. He was the first leader, and I was the UKIP candidate. And when the results came, I managed to beat 
the official monster Raving Looney Party. I'll tell you by how many? 166. 166 votes. I was 166 <laughs> ahead of the loonies. Yes. Um, but, but I met Such and I liked him. And of course, you know, he died far too early. You'd been the deputy since the formation yes. of the party in 82. You then became the leader in 1999, yes. and you've been the leader ever since. 22 years. Now, I did speak to one or two people ahead of this interview who do say, Alan, that you are an autocrat. Yes. That what does that no, mean? <laughs> there, is no, there is no internal democracy <laughs> yeah. within, within the loonies, that you are a complete dictator. Oh. Do you think that's true? <laughs> yes. <laughs> I, I love dictators. <laughs> but you're leader for life. Yes. You're there forever. I'm not there. Not there. I'm, I'm there until I decide... I don't want to be, somebody else can take over, yes. But that's, that's written in our constitution, yes. You've got it in the constitution? Yes. Right, so you can't be challenged, which is good. So you are, you, you are still fighting. I mean, we first met on the by-election, yes. didn't we? And we've had a lot of laughs. Of course we have. And a lot of fun. And a few beers. We have had a couple of drinks, it's true. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I mean, look, however serious politics is, we've got to have a bit of fun doing it. And I think the loonies do bring a lot of fun to it. How many by-elections have you stood in now? 19 by-elections. And I've also done, I also, also hold the record for general elections. I've actually stood in nine general elections, more than anybody else in Great Britain. <laughs> nine general elections. But it is, of course, a rule of the party that anybody that ever gets elected would have to be expelled. Well, yes, that is, that, that is a rule. But um, I was elected when I was down in Ashburton in Devon as a town councillor. And I, became, I consequently became the town mayor, chairman of the council and lord of the borough. But... I didn't get any votes. I was returned unopposed. Right. <laughs> so that meant you could stay in the yes. party. So you've been, a, you've, been a, you've been a publican, you've been a hotelier. Yes. You know, down on the edge of Dartmoor there for many, many years. What people don't know about you, don't know about Screaming Lord such perhaps so much either, is that you were a rock and roller. It is all in my book. Yes. And there it is there, look. Yes. A great white hope. <laughs> yes. And you were a rock and roller. A folk singer, but no, no, not a folk singer. Not a folk singer. No, no, a country music singer. Sorry, I apologise. Yes, country I music. Yes, I apologise. <laughs> I apologise. But tell us this story about you and the Beatles. Well, there's 27 pages in this book about me and the Beatles in all the shot. Um, they were booked to play at the Pally Ballroom in all the shot, the, the, the Pally Dance, yep. which I played at every weekend. And I was told by the man who owned it at the time, have that weekend off, so-and-so, so-and-so, because I've hired the, the ballroom out to somebody else who's going to put on a, 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 a rock and roll show, a rock and roll bands from North and South. Yep. So we didn't know who was going to be on. So the man down the central ballroom, down the road, in Aldershot, Mike Burton, um, he had a cancellation on this particular night. So we went and played for him. And, of course, all the people at the Aldershot Pally come down to watch... I was the local hero, if you like, in Aldershot. Nobody ever heard of the Beatles. <laughs> what a silly name for a group in those days. <laughs> and, 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 of course, uh, uh, they say 18 that turned up to watch the Beatles. It wasn't 18 at all. It was only 11. It, the 18 were made up of the four Beatles, Sam Leach, the manager, Dick Matthews, the, uh, the uh, photographer, and um, the road manager... And that, so you, that made the 18. So you upstaged them. You upstaged yeah. them. A long way, a long time back. Yes. But uh, at, my, at, my, at my gig down the road in the Central Ballroom, I had 300 people. Well, there you go. <laughs> there you go. A loss. I'd say there's 27 pages in this book <laughs> about it. The Great White Hope. <laughs> and politics, Alan, I mean, 
you've actually there's quite a lot of you in the Raving Loony Party, aren't there? Yes. It's I mean it's not it's not just it's you not, and a No, no, all over the world. We've got three hundred and thirty six thousand members, or mostly mostly expats. Australia, New Zealand, Canada, and even you, even even in Patagonia. <laughs> well, I believe you. Because I believe that's you. where the Welsh settled. But it's a little bit of old Britain. Some of your policies, which seem some of the policies that Such campaigned for and you've campaigned for, have actually come true. Yes. They? I mean, I think one of the first ones was all day pub opening. Yes. Was an official loony policy. Yes. And Don't be just say that's loony. <laughs> it's actually happened. Is there anything else that you've wanted to happen? Well, yes, we we, um, we 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 passports for pets for another one. Yeah. Okay. Yes. Yes. Yeah, I mean, what we were saying was, why can't you have your dog or your cat inoculated to go abroad and come back after two weeks without going through six months quarantine? Don't be so stupid. That's loony. Now they're doing it, right. but but that slightly backfired on us. I'll tell you for why, because it worked the other way as well. The European dogs and animals yep. can now come to Europe, but from Europe to England, without without being inoculated. So. British dogs aren't winning crafts anymore. Ah! You've got European dogs winning yes, crafts? Yes. There we are. That, the that party <laughs> ruined crafts. Yes. But I say that because you're actually, what I've also noticed about all of your supporters, all the people I've met at the by election counts and all the laughs and fun we've had, you're actually a very patriotic lot, aren't you? Oh, yes. True British. You know, you really believe yes. in the country. Yes. And is that why you do this? Yes. Because it's the first past the post electoral system. Yes. It's completely impossible. We are. We are the official monster Raven Looney party. We are, we are the party that's on everybody's side, no matter what political persuasion they may be. But you have your own, persu- you have your own persuasions, Alan, and you were, I think it's, I know, maybe you won't answer this, but I think you were a Brexiteer, weren't you? Yes, I was. Yes, I wanted to come out. Yes. And I, I, I thank you for doing that. <laughs> well, I helped kick the ball off, there's yes. no doubt about that. Yes. So what happens now? Do you, do you guys just go on fighting election after election? Does, does the Looney party... Does the loony, when you retire, does the loony party go on or was it just a creation of you and David Such for It will go ago? on. As far as I'm concerned, it will go on, yes. It will go on. Yes, yes, yes. Uh, let, let, let me just tell you, going back to what we spoke about in the first thing, yeah. uh, the longest serving party leader in Great Britain. Yeah. And I live in Fleet in Hampshire. Yep. But um, I am now been 22 years the party leader and I've just overtaken Clement Attlee. <laughs> now, Clement Attlee also lived in Fleet. Did he really? Yes. And he played Fleet for, he played football for Fleet, for, for Fleet Town. What, yeah, and... What, what Fleet's given to this country? Yes. Yeah? And I'll tell you something about Fleet now. You go through uh, lots and lots of the, uh, the, the newspaper polls, Fleet and the area it's in, in Hampshire, is one of the nicest and safest parts in Great Britain to live. Is it? Yes. Is it? Yes. Is that because you're there? Yes. Well, there we are. That's well, I help it, I think. That was obvious, wasn't <laughs> it? That was obvious. No, it's a wonderful place. So 22 years as leader, you're going on, looneyism is going yes, on. Yes, yes. Uh, and what's your manifesto going to be for the next election, do you think? Well, I can't tell you that because they'll all seal it. <laughs> well, they might do after passports <laughs> for pets and all-day pub opening. And, 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 and we, we also campaigned for uh, uh, recognition for the Beatles in the early days. Never, ever expecting them to become sirs, but they did, didn't they? They did, so recognition for the Beatles. Yeah, yeah. Well, Alan, I mean, I'm amazed. So much success, and yet everyone laughs at you. No, they don't. <laughs> don't they? No. Well, we but listen, one of my favourite memories of you, Nigel, is when we met in uh, uh, Bradford West. Yep. Do you remember when, uh, when, uh, when George Galloway won the seat? I do. Yes, and you came and you visited me in my party headquarters, 
the, 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 the new bird's nest. Yep, the my pub. party headquarters. Yep, yep. And I've got this for you, and I'm going to present this to you now. Take a look at this. Make Bradford bonkers. Oh, that's this fantastic. Is, this is Nigel Farage, folks. <laughs> Being a loony. <laughs> look. Well, I did. I have to say, I have to say thank you for that. And I do also remember, after the, after the, after the election, there we are. This was me nearly defecting to the loony party. Nearly? It was very close. It was nip and tuck. Let me tell you something else now. Nigel, you've always said to me, if you weren't involved in Brexit and then, and then, what, and, then and, and UKIP, whatever, whatever, if you weren't ever involved with them, the only party you ever joined would be the loony party. Well, of course. There's no question about that. There's no question you've about that. You've told me that many course, times. Of course, And of you've course. told many other people of too. Of course. No, I'm not denying it for a moment, Alan. Of course I'm not. And I, I do remember, I do remember a magnificent night. In Rochester, yes, when Mark Reckless yes. had stood down as a Conservative MP, stood for UKIP in that by-election, incredibly brave and principled yes. and decent thing to do. He was, yeah. And we were holding a sort of, well, pretty uproarious party in a nightclub. Weren't we? <laughs> in Rochester, and you came in, and I asked you to speak, and you did say that UKIP was becoming so successful that you were thinking of defecting. And it brought the house No, down. I didn't say defecting, Nigel. I said <laughs> infecting. Infecting. Sorry, infecting. Infecting you with looneyism. <laughs> right. Infecting. Well, we've had an awful lot of fun doing it. And, and I do hope the loony party carries on. It will I, do. Because I think it's harmless. I think it's fun. I think you're incredibly patriotic people that care about this country. Yes. A huge, huge amount. Yes, we Is are. there any equivalent of you anywhere else in the world? Well, we do have the Munster Raven Looney Party in Germany. The Munsters? Munster. In Munster, in Munster itself. Mm-hmm. I'm mm-hmm. trying to get a Munster, a Munster Looney Party in, in Ireland too, but they won't have it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, of course they could be, couldn't they? Yes. No, I think this is a uniquely British phenomenon. And I think you've added to the gaiety of life in this country in a wonderful way. And I hope you go on doing it, Alan, for a long, long time. And thank you very much. And I hope you do as well, Nigel. Oh, I'm done with the politics for now. Oh, I, I, let, me, let me just finish. Let me just just, yeah. just just finish one thing. Yeah. As far as I'm concerned, and many other people are concerned, you're probably the best prime minister we never had. Well, that is incredibly sweet of you. I'll drink to that. Thank you very much indeed. That was Alan Hope. Well, there we are. Who said we cannot have a bit of light-hearted fun? in all the seriousness of politics on this day, uh, when we've been looking with such uh, concern at the events going on at Kabul Airport. But you've got to have a bit of fun in life too. And the loonies, I've got to tell you, they have brought so much fun to British public life. So I hope they go on forever doing it. Now, we're going to finish off, as we always do, with Barrage the Farage. And, as you know... I don't get to see the questions before, which makes it all that much more exciting. So here we go. Jim asks me, Nigel, do you find it mildly strange that the Taliban are allowed a Twitter account, yet the previous democratically elected leader of the United States or not? I have to say thank you for that. It is astonishing, isn't it? It's almost as if Silicon Valley is trying to legitimise the appalling Taliban who are going to take millions of people's lives back to the dark ages in in Afghanistan. And yet the 45th president of the United States of America is completely silenced by Twitter, by Facebook, by all those social media channels. I mean, that is an absolute, complete and utter disgrace. And something has got to happen. Something has got to change. We cannot have Sir Nick Clegg 
and people like that being the arbiters of what we can and cannot see. So you're quite right to point out the discrepancy between the Taliban being on Twitter and Donald Trump being banned. It is absolutely nuts. Neil on email asks me, should Pretty Patel explain exactly what the 54 million has been spent on by the French authorities, given the number of migrant crossings increased to record levels at the weekend? Yep, we had 592, came into Dover last Thursday, a new record, although I'm told several were not caught and just disappeared off into the countryside. Uh, yesterday, the number was 285. Uh, they probably won't come for a couple of days. Northwesterly winds them a channel, but they'll come again. And I've said it again and again, you know, it is going to be in excess of 25,000 people this year. It is totally out of control. And that was before what's happening in Afghanistan. And what generally happens is people illegally crossing the channel and yes, they claim asylum once they get here, but they very rarely have ID. They think by not having ID, they can't be sent back anywhere. And I promise you, what's going to happen from now on is everybody will say we've come from Afghanistan. So the problems in the channel will get even worse because of this Biden bungle. For us, it's the biggest foreign policy failure since Suez. Uh, for Biden, well... They're saying it's not Saigon, but it could turn out to be even worse. Leslie on email says, please tell us about the tie you are wearing today. It looks great. Is it a special one? Well, it's a, it's a summer tie. Uh, to be honest with you, I have vowed that I'll wear a different tie every single day that I'm here on this show. Now, I might run out in six months' time, but I've got hundreds of them, and I can't even remember where that one was from. But thank you for the compliment. And if, you, if I do wear a tie you can't stand, equally, you can say that as well. Alan on email says, what sort of music do you like? What was your first concert? Well, sadly, it should have been Kerry Rapid and the Soul Tones. I should Blue have... Stars. I, Blue Stars. I should have gone and watched Alan. I should have gone and watched Alan. I didn't. I think the first concert I went to was an open-air, outdoor concert in about 1980 with Suggs and Madness playing, oh, I think. Yeah. And I thoroughly approved of that. I love Madness. Thought it was absolutely great fun. Right, the last one I'm going to do here is, Catherine says, do you think that you may be the best Prime Minister the UK may never have? Well... That is a loony thing to say. Yes. It's a loony thing to say. Only Alan Hope would say a thing like that.